This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. What do we mean by civic education? Is it just a course on the three branches of government? Or should students be mobilized to participate in political campaigns? Should students be asked to pronounce on the political and social divisions in society, or is it more important for students to acquire a sound understanding of American history? Weighing in on this topic is a new textbook on American history, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story by Wilfred McCloy. Now, this new high school or introductory college text has none of the study words at the end of each chapter or keyword marginalia or italicized concepts in the text that big publishers think is necessary for students to learn history. Instead, it tells the American story with all of the ideals and blemishes fully on display in a flowing, engaging style that opens new vistas for old hands and novices alike. It praises the country's great accomplishments, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Civil Rights Amendments, and the defeat of totalitarian regimes in World War II. All in all, Professor McCloy's Land of Hope gives us as good a civics lesson as one can hope for. Now, I'm delighted to have with me on the Education Exchange the author of Land of Hope, uh, Wilfred McClay. Thank you, Professor McClay, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I'm delighted, delighted to do it, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually an admirer of your the work you've done on school choice and that sort of thing, so, uh, so this is a real pleasure for me. Well, uh, Professor McClay, this is not a good time to write a textbook. People are watching Netflix. Readership is in decline. The textbook market is dominated by big publishing houses, and if you write a good text, your own used copies are sold again and again without you earning a penny. Why did you decide to write The Land of Hope? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a masochist. No, no, the, uh, seriously, the answer is, uh, semi-seriously, the answer is that uh, I'm sure people said the same thing to Winston Churchill at the, at the, um, in the, the ebb of uh, Britain's fortunes during 1940 uh, when it looked as if everything was uh, going, going the Germans' way. And uh, that's just the time you redouble your efforts. Uh, and it's our it's our children. It's uh, the next generation of Americans. It's the future of our republic. It's in some way at stake if if we don't get our act together and start educating people. So uh, look, I, and I don't think there's any substitution substitute for reading. Um, so I uh, have, and I have to say, I'm very fortunate to have a publisher, Encounter Books, that has been entirely supportive of my efforts. They haven't. They never asked to vet the, 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 the manuscript to, to make sure it was uh, obeying particular canons or appealing to textbook committees in particular states. And uh, it was a, it's a one-person job, um, so all the faults are also mine, all the mistakes are mine. But uh, I felt that there was a need for um, a, a narrative account that is it tells a story, and it's really a confluence of many stories, but it is, there is an American story. And it is every great nation, even mediocre nations for that matter, but every great nation, every great people needs a great narrative. A narrative is what, um, um, and, and a true narrative, it can't be a fabricated narrative. Uh, it ha- has to be drawn out of the... Of the, the people's sense of themselves, and 
lacking that narrative, lacking a story, um, you lack a sort of rationale for yourselves and uh, a sense of the directionality of the culture, a sense of the way in which you're connected with what came before and with what what uh, is possible in what is to come. So well, you write with great elegance and with uh, with uh, you don't write down to your reader at all. Uh, and anybody can read it no matter what their background in history. I've read quite a few history books in my life, and I, I still found it a real pleasure to read your book. But uh, is it accessible to the high school student? That's the question I want to ask you. Do you feel... Is it accessible? Yeah. Can they, can yeah, they read I, this I, and, and... I cap- wrote it with... Um, my sort of ideal reader is uh, an 11th or 12th grade student, and arguably at a better school, but uh, who's preparing to take the advanced placement exam in U.S. history. That was, that, I started out with that, that was sort of the, um, the arrow point towards, you know how when you're bowling, uh, you, you aim for one of those arrow points on the lane, I was sort of aiming for th- that arrow point. As I got into it and started sharing drafts of chapters, I realized that this was something that could be appealing to lots of people on lots of different levels, and it's it's already selling like crazy, uh, and, and it hasn't even really hit the school market yet. So I I think it's a, it, it's also a, a trade book, and it's a very handsome book. I have to say, uh, Encounter did a great job. So it's almost a coffee table book. It's a, it's a, interesting how the thing has evolved. But yet, to answer your question directly, that that I wanted to peg it to <clears throat> high school students. I know parts of it are going to be challenging, but I have not condescended. Um, I'm, I, this is one of my, if, if I may go on about this a little bit, I've, one of my beliefs about education, secondary, K-12, particularly secondary education, is that we simply don't ask enough of students. And if we ask more of them, they respond. Um, I, uh, this is not on, on secondary level, but I, I instituted a course at my university, which is, has an enormous amount of reading. It's a kind of compressed great books course. And we were told uh, that the colleagues that I that teach the course, uh, this was not going to, students wouldn't do this. They wouldn't be willing to do all this reading. Um, you know, they read uh, uh, Homer and Aeneid and so on, all the way through to Dostoevsky and uh, it's an amazing course. And we simply went around and said to students, this will be the hardest course you'll ever take. Uh, and it was like saying, uh, we dare you to try to make the Marine Corps. Uh, and there were students, with the day of registration, the class filled up before me. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's college level of course. So you yeah, you may be right. But it, it may be that stu- principle applies on yeah. other levels and it so may I've, it may I've be into what I think is the best that students are capable of. Yeah, it may be that you you are right to challenge students, but now look at the fashionable textbook on American history writes about the enslavement of blacks, the extermination of Native Americans, the exploitation of the worker, the cultural and political suppression of women and the despoilment of the landscape. And you write about the American Constitution, Ralph Aldo Emerson's speech on independent thinking by the American scholar, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Haven't you glossed over the bitter realities of American history in your text? No, I haven't. And uh, I I think I deal with all of those things. Uh, 
uh, gosh, I live in a state that is uh, not only not named, the name Oklahoma means home of the red man, but we, we have a, a thriving uh, tribal culture in this state that's very, actually very assimilated to the state. It's interesting. So that, you know, the extermination of, of, or genocide, I forget what term you used, but uh, of Native Americans, it's, it's a half-truth. And a, and a lot of these things are uh, slavery, and I don't blink any of that, and, uh, and, and the various ways that we, uh, as a people, have fallen short. But uh, they, those have to be kept in perspective. First of all, our failures are, are we, we grieve about them more because we have such ideals to begin with. If we didn't have those ideals, we would, we would easily be able to sort of set aside our failures as part of human nature and uh, uh, not, nothing to be much concerned about. The reason we, we have direct such searing self-criticism at ourselves is because we, we have, stand for something better and we hold ourselves to that standard. The, 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 my title, Land of Hope, is partly meant to convey this, that we, we have hope in the sense that we're always striving for something better than the conditions into which we are born. But being a land of hope also means sometimes being a land of disappointment. You can't be disappointed unless you had high expectations to begin with. So my, my goal is, in dealing with the flaws and faults and warts of the country is to say, is acknowledge them, but not, but not lose a sense of perspective. But this is not, um, the story of slavery is not the whole story of the United States. The story of the exploitation of working classes is not the whole story of the United States. It is part of the story. Um, well, so I did find your right uh, I did, uh, uh, Professor McClay. I did find your analysis of the origins and the conflicts and the consequences of the War of Independence uh, really brilliantly succinct. Uh, but now, how would you sum it up? I mean, that the whole story you've laid out there. But why did the colonies revolt against a kind and generous country? I think you make that point, that Britain really wasn't treating the colonies all that bad. Their requests were quite reasonable. So yeah. what's, what's, your, what's your explanation for? Well, and of course, you're right. This is something, I mean, a, a much controverted subject among historians. And I, in graduate school, I worked with one of the best uh, colonial early national people in the country, Jack Green, um, and read every up one side and down the other of all the historiography. But I think it boils it boils down to the desire to for self rule that the colonies uh, had in various ways established quasi British institutions of self government, um, and uh, and that's actually very British, not just quasi-British, but they're very British, uh, with, it, with local adaptations. And in the wake of the French and Indian War, there was uh, an effort to sort of rationalize the British Empire and, and incorporate the colonies more fully into the imperial governance structure. The colonists said, no. Uh, not all of them. A lot of people just didn't, you know, they were, they were indifferent to these matters. Uh, uh, but the, the ones who, were, who, who cared uh, um, felt we had always ruled ourselves. I end that chapter uh, with a long interview with a, a, a man who fought in the revolution who said, you know, you know we, they, all the ideological reasons that are sometimes cited mattered less than we had, we had always governed ourselves. And we meant to stay that way. And, and uh, the Redcoats uh, thought otherwise. So that's why we fought. 
Um, I actually think that that's, there are lots of other currents, economic currents, going and uh, um, cultural and other other sorts of things. But I think at the bottom, that's the explanation. It's what the Declaration uh, of Independence uh, said. Uh, I guess is is your explanation. But now, how about the Constitution? I really enjoyed your con- your 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 uh, discussion of the Constitution, your understanding of of uh, what was being accomplished there. But there's one difference between your story and the story I give to my students in the Introduction to American Government. I emphasize that the Constitution was written to win an election, and a lot of those compromises were really necessary if they were ever going to get this ratified. Um, what's your view of that? How much was the Constitution driven by that? I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, I, I, but and maybe uh, the difference is the way... I'm. Let me see how I can put this. Uh, a lot of people who see compromises, like you know, the, the compromise, the compromise, the Roger Sherman compromise that made um, the the passage of the Constitution. Of course, the ratification was another thing entirely, but made that made the the agreement on the document possible. Um, in some ways, it looks like you know <laughs> Solomon splitting the baby because. Some people's eyes, where it looks like a kind of crass political deal, and and in some ways, it this works. is the compromise over the New Jersey and the Virginia plan that you're talking yes, about. Yes, the right, the right. the, the and, composition and, 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 of the House and the Senate. One side wanted yeah, a majority, have, the other wanted each state. Character yeah. of the House and the Senate. Uh, you know, the House being more representative in the Senate, of, of the people, and the Senate being more representative of the states. Um, but in fact. This is a political deal that also, even even if the motive behind it was the striking of a deal, it uh, turns out to embody important principles of, of of governance. Principles that we have in some ways strayed from. I'm not sure, uh, but what to our detriment. But uh, um, that the, the principle that in some way the the federal system, as the, the as the framers understood it required some kind of institutional recognition of the states as as quasi or semi-sovereign entities um, as, as entities unto themselves and but it also required in some way the recognition uh, of the people uh, by population by sheer population mass and so how, you, 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 you to, to split the difference is to sort of say both of these claims uh, have legitimacy and so how do you create an institution's institutional form that can accommodate both of those claims both uh, and in a way federalism uh, one of the things I do emphasize about the Brit- the whole problem of the British Empire that brought on the revolution is that the the uh, <clears throat> we didn't have the conceptual framework or the technology to allow the British Empire to be federal in character you know, the colonies kind of did their own thing, and they really were effectively independent. And then the efforts made after the fact to draw them into a um, into a system in which they, you know, they represented in Parliament, they paid taxes, and it just it just wasn't it, it was not possible after 150 years of doing things differently. But the, the, there is something about this notion of federalism that you divide authority between national and local and state uh, authority and, and try to distribute those things. 
subsidiarity is a more recent term that uh, comes out of Catholic social thought that says, says some of the same thing. This is a sound principle. Yes, but, but remember this, uh, Professor McClay, the other side of that coin is that Hobbes said that uh, if there's not one sovereign, you'll have uh, a civil war. If there are two sovereigns, yeah. they will go to war with one another, which is in fact what happened with the Civil War. Now, I want to ask you about the Civil War, because you, you yeah. really do have right. a beautiful account of the Civil War, the, the, uh, the, the period leading up to the war, the, the Old South, what, what it, it's, uh, how, how it actually operated as a society. All of that is just a lovely part of your book. But now I want to ask you, this question, because I don't think this question gets asked often enough, and that is, did we really have to have a civil war? Could not we have ended slavery? Uh, it, was, it was passing from the scene throughout the world by the middle of the 19th century. A little more patience, another generation, it would have been gone anyway. Did we really need the civil war? Yes. Well, you know, this is one of the big questions, and uh, um, you know, I, 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 I think um, what made what made the Civil War? Uh, I, I, I accept very few things as being inevitable, including the Civil War. But um, but I think what made it highly probable was the Mexican War, and the way the Mexican War, that enormous acquisition of land, uh, without uh, having really gotten beyond the Missouri Compromise as a way to think through how that land was to be. Um, allocated with respect with respect to slavery and, and, and anti-slavery, you know, constitutions and ways of life, and so it opened everything up. I mean, there's a way in which no Mexican War, uh, we might well have moved along the path that you describe. Uh, um, but you know, and, and uh, I think a lot of the arguments too that slavery was on its way out. Yeah, you know. Uh, that that assumes that slavery couldn't have been adapted for things like uh, mining, copper mining in the West. And it seems to me there's some good scholarship on this, that, that in fact uh, there were lots of uh, extractive and non-agricultural uh, forms of economic activity that slavery could, as a labor force could have been adapted for. Uh, could, it, could the po political situation have been handled better and differently? Um, yes. I mean, I think uh, things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Dred Scott decision, of course, uh, um, and those were the things that propelled Lincoln back into politics after uh, his getting out of politics and making a lot of money as a very good lawyer. Uh, um, but it was, uh, it was, it was that, that, that prospect of uh, slavery gaining ground again uh, that that brought Lincoln back into politics. Um, Lincoln, you know, ran uh, on an explicit uh, platform that he would not disturb slavery where it already existed. But uh, national expansion, and this gets back to the Mexican War, uh, meant that the South realized that um, it, it would be important to keep a balance, as had been sought in the Missouri Compromise, between slave states and free states, or else the South was just going to become one corner of a continental nation, and therefore a perpetual minority. And uh, and that happened with the um, you know, the state where you are now sitting, California. That happened with the admission of California and the, and the, um, the Compromise of 18. Yeah, well, the, so the, these, are, these are these are. 
I, 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 I understand. I understand what you're saying, uh, Professor McClay, but uh, to just to want, one of the hardest things about writing a history book is to bring it down to the present and the recent past is the most difficult yes. thing, I think, for any historian. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about, I, I felt you were a little bit more critical of President Obama than you, I mean, he was in fact the first African-American. It was in a tremendous accomplishment uh, on the part of the American people to to have uh, oh. have elected a person uh, of, of of that background, and 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 he and he did accomplish. He worked with the Bush administration to to pull us out of the the financial crisis, and he, and the Affordable Care Act is something that's never been overturned. It's going to be part of our system, one way or another, for for years to come. So. Uh, Maybe, do you think you might have given them a little bit more of a positive assessment? Well, I, okay, let me, for your listeners, let them, you know, I, I only have about three paragraphs or so about Barack Obama and, uh, and, only, and not a whole lot more about um, Clinton or George W. Bush, and I, I don't even think I have that about uh, Trump. I, what I, I deliberately tried to do, after in uh, 1992, the end of the Cold War, uh, well, you know, wherever you choose to date that, but, but certainly by 1992 was over, um, uh, it is to say, okay, we're in a Cold War, a post-Cold War era now. We, we're still sorting out what that means. And uh, so I, I, uh, this is one place where it really does, uh, I'm really taking into account its use as a textbook, because I've taught history both to high school and college students. You never get up to the present. Uh, and when you do, uh, there's a danger that you simply will adopt the conventional wisdom of what journalists and others are saying instead of um, drawing back in the way that we can draw back when we write about the 30s or the 20s or the, the 19th century. So I, I, I said as little as I could about uh, about those specific post-Cold War figures without just completely leaving them out of the picture. I, I think I was, uh, uh, I don't think I was harsh towards uh, President Obama, I, and I certainly did uh, acknowledge the, the, I mean, I can look back, go back and look at exactly what I said in the text, but I certainly did acknowledge the, 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 the sort of amazing property of his election as our first uh, African American president, um, but it it and, and and Obamacare is important. Very, you know, I I think uh, we can have an interesting discussion about in what ways it will always continue to be part of our system. But it it certainly is not a uh, not an unproblematic solution uh, to our the problems of, of health care, and uh, and it is is something we're still struggling with. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think my point in the treatment of those three figures, um, or four figures, including Trump, uh, very little on Trump, um, is to sort of say we're, we're struggling with a whole new set of issues in the wake of the Cold War. What is America's role in the world? Uh, are we, to be, uh, are we to, to, to be sort of the world's guardian? Are we to sort of... Uh, um, subsume our sovereignty under that of the United Nations? Are we to withdraw from the world as to the extent possible? All three and other options are on the table now. We're still, and different presidencies have, 
have leaned one way or another, but we still don't have a consensus about any of those things. Uh, the, the size and scope of the national security apparatus. We don't, you know, we're, we're trying to think all of that through. So I think as a historian, it's much better for me to, to draw back and, and see these as issues that are still uh, being wrestled with rather than to try to venture some kind of position. Let me ask you one final question here. You quote John Paso that says political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards. It's really a powerful phrase. So what is the civics lesson that is contained in your book? It, what is the, the uh, in what way is this book contributing to the civic education of uh, young people today? Well, first of all, I think it, it shows um, uh, since it's a short answer and a long answer, I'll try to give a medium answer. <laughs> but they, it shows why, how it is that our institutions, our foundational institutions, no, notably the Constitution, came about. Not uh, merely uh, is. I mean, there's one difference between we historians and political scientists is that, uh, or political theorists anyway, is that we're interested in in showing the process by which something concrete comes into being. Uh, a theorist is more interested in examining the principles, extracting the principles. I try to do a little of both, but you can't really understand why the framers were so concerned about the concentration of power, about the need for separation of powers, and a lot of things that today frustrate us about the Constitution. Unless you see the Constitution as something that, that emerges in real time as a response to real circumstances. So thank you very much, uh, yeah. Professor McClay, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with uh, Winfred McClay, Professor of History at the University of Oklahoma and author of Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. Thank you, Professor McClay. Thank you very much. Yes, I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.